yes, you, you know, you are, you are struggling and suffering postpartum, but there are tools, there are methods that can help you. Life can get easier. It does not have to be this hard all the time. So resources are definitely available, you know, should you choose to pursue them. back to the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. This week, we get to hear from co-host Angela Love as she meets with Ruthie Eisenberg, a dedicated California-licensed psychotherapist currently located in Israel. Ruthie shares her personal story of what brought her to focus her career on maternal and perinatal mental health, including her own parenting journey. Together, Angela and Ruthie dive into a variety of topics surrounding maternal mental health, including normal and abnormal emotional reactions, cues of typical hormonal reactions versus postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, the impact of sleep deprivation, trauma during birth, and how that is registered in a mother's brain, perinatal mood checkers, intrusive thoughts, medication for perinatal mental health, and so much more. Ruthie also shares a personal passion she has in yoga nidra and shares how helpful she believes it is for postpartum mental health restoration. Without further ado, let's dive into this expansive episode. Hello, beloved community. This is Angela Love coming to you today from sunny Florida. I am a nurse midwife with a home birth practice, and this year I've been a midwife 20 years, and I also have a telehealth business for midwives called Midwife RX, trying to help midwife clients get medications that they need. I'm really excited about our topic today. We're going to be talking about perinatal health, and with me is Ruthie, and if Ruthie, you want to introduce yourself to our audience. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm happy to be here. And uh, my name is Ruthie Eisenberg. And um, let's see, who am I? That's a big question. <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit what I do, uh, but that's not who I am. It's just some of the roles that I play. So uh, some of my roles are I'm a mom. I have two kids. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And uh, I work as a therapist. I have my own practice called mental fitness therapy, where uh, we specialize in seeing moms, dads, perinatal people, um, and and also the general population as well. It's about half of my practice. Um, and then the rest of the time, I dedicate a lot of time to yoga. So I'm a student of yoga. I'm also a teacher of yoga. Um, I also have a podcast for Yoga Nidra for non-sleep deep rest practice, um, which I find to be just transformationally helpful. And um, during my free time, I like to spend as much time as possible outside, in nature, doing creative things and quality time, family, friends, and also with my community. Beautiful. And uh, where you're coming to us, I think, from the other side of the world, Ruthie, where are you at currently? So currently I'm in Israel, uh, and this is a, a bit of <laughs> interesting place to be these days because there is a war going on here. Um, but I have to say, 
I feel so safe being here and uh, it's this experience really brings the point home to me that safety it starts from the inside it's it's a sense of how we feel and uh, sometimes you know when I, when I think when I zoom out and I start thinking about the situation uh, then I start feeling unsafe you know like oh maybe I you know I feel unsafe let's say going to taking a bus to Jerusalem or something but then when I get there I feel completely safe so it's such an safety is such an interesting subjective thing Um, it really is yeah yeah Yeah, so um I got interested in perinatal mental health um as a midwife Um, because I saw a lot of my clients struggling. Uh, Some of them would be struggling during pregnancy. Uh, Some of them would be struggling after. Um, It's a humongous transformation, uh, becoming a parent, and kind of like the old self dying off a little bit and a new self being created. Combine that with hormonal changes, combine that with sleep deprivation, and a lot of people have a really hard time and so that's how I kind of like dip my toe into and to start looking into it. And I took the training through Postpartum Support International. I've taken their um, prescriber training and I've also taken, um, you know, their pharmacology and, and all of their main trainings too. So cool. now tell me about your journey to be interested in perinatal mental health. Yeah, so um, I actually... I actually came into perinatal mental health kind of by by accident. I didn't plan to end up with the specialization, but it just kind of happened and really fortuitously. Um, my story is that uh, with my first kid, I had very mixed feelings about becoming a mom and part of me really wanted that experience and really wanted uh, to, to have a kid and raise a, have a child in my life and raise a child. And then part of me was just so terrified and I, I thought it, I was going to lose all my freedom and just never have any fun anymore. Um, so my first kid, that didn't come true. Um, my expectations were so low that the reality was actually much better. And um, and and I, I had a good experience. Um, however, with my second, with my second kid, um, I there were definitely some curveballs and it was uh he arrived early i had to stop working like very abruptly i i went to the hospital for routine monitoring with my laptop um to go back planning to go back to the office and and they said like no you can't really leave anymore you have to have the baby today like what i'm not ready for this and things just didn't go as planned in in many ways it was also a difficult year that just different situational stressors kind of piled up and snowballed. Um, and through all of this, I was um, I was managing. I was holding down a job. I was taking care of both of my kids. Um, I was dealing with all the external situational stressors that came my way. And uh, the stress definitely took its hold on me, which I didn't really realize at the time. Uh, but I had a hard time. I was constantly just stressed. I was anxious. I was irritated a lot. Um, I was using coping skills to kind of 
power through it, you know. Uh, but but on the inside, I I wasn't I wasn't feeling great. Um, so eventually things things came to a head and um, through just a series of really fortunate events, I ended up in a job as a clinician at uh, perinatal IOP PHP program, uh, intensive outpatient program at El Camino Hospital in Mountain View in the mom's program. And, th and that was just the best place for me to be because there I, first of all, got really excellent training in the perinatal specialty. Um, we I also had the uh, just the honor of working with some really incredible people there. We had this just this magical, fantastic team, and good things happened there, you know. And uh, it also, and it also really helped me to gain insight into what my own process was and what I was going through, and these little symptoms that I didn't even realize at the time that I was having. It kind of like brought brought all these things to light uh, that oh wait uh you know it, it's not okay to feel so anxious so much of the time uh perinatal you know postpartum uh you know it's uh that you know having um even having like intrusive or catastrophic thoughts about something bad happening to the baby that oh that's a normal thing that actually a lot of moms have that so we did, uh, we had like a whole unit on Brene, using Brene Brown's curriculum. Um, and so that really, that was really shame deactivating. And that was just, um, that was just very, very healing. I feel like I kind of, I think I kind of vicariously were um, benefited as vicariously kind of as a, as a byproduct of being a therapist and learning about uh, perinatal mental health and working with the with the patients there and the material just kind of seeped in by us both <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. helped me as well so um, after that well during that time actually I also did the PSI training um, I did the components of care and the advanced psychotherapy training which well, which was really good so, um, so it, it's good to hear that you did a training with them also and um, and then I've just been seeing new parents and moms ever since it became a, a passion of mine, and uh, I plan to continue. Uh, so beautiful. That's, there's there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, and yeah. I feel like um, I try to talk to each one of my birthing families about the anticipated mood changes um, that are coming postpartum for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Um, so that they can be aware of what's what's possible, be on the lookout for these signs and symptoms, mm -hmm. and develop a plan, you know, in case we do need to take some actions, how are we going to work with this? So do you want to start talking about maybe the baby blues, the first things that show up? Oh, um, yeah, sure. We can talk about the baby blues. Well, first of all, you know, that's so awesome that you, um, I just want to comment how amazing it is that you prep your patients and you talk to them ahead of time about what could happen and what to expect um, so that they don't get hit with an anvil with something that's, you know, such a unfamiliar thing. Um, as they say, knowledge is power. And 
unfortunately, a lot of moms that I've worked with have not been prepped and uh, are just very surprised that that they're feeling all these symptoms and that life is so difficult. Um, they just get very surprised and really feel like, you know, they've been hit by a bus after having a baby. So uh, getting back to the baby blues, um, most people have baby blues. Uh, baby blues is, it's a hormonal thing and uh, it's feeling tearful, feeling, you know, just feeling kind of out of sorts, feeling sad. Uh, and it happens in the first two, two to three weeks postpartum. However, if these symptoms are persisting after, you know, I would say like after two to three weeks, if they're not getting better, not resolving and either staying the same or getting worse, then we are looking at a postpartum depression, uh, which, which needs to be addressed. Um, I remember when I had baby blues, my husband like put a fork on the table and I started crying uh, just from that. So we know that when the response is not proportional to the trigger, that's baby blues. It's hormonal. Uh, it's not really logical. Um, yeah. I we can it. kind of laugh at it, but uh, but it is a real thing. So um, so I, I want moms to, to be empowered and to know that it's normal to feel sad and it's normal to be tearful and crying and get anxious and have some of these symptoms after. Yeah. I think it's like this amazing, powerful, intense process has just happened, birth. Mm -hmm. And everything takes on like a hyper awareness and a hyper significance. And yeah. I remember when I was taking care of my sister postpartum and she was staying with me. So I had a very close look at a postpartum day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And it was like she only wanted to talk about really deep things. <laughs> you know, it was like she was on another plane of existence for a couple of weeks where just everything was really intense. And sometimes it would be elation and joy and amazement. And then a sad commercial would come on and, you know, she'd be sobbing. So it was that yeah. moodiness, that up and that down. And and yeah, just like you said, out of proportion to, to really what's going on. But it's it's an interesting place to be. And I I think I didn't really enjoy the baby blues uh, until it was happening with my sister. And I just had the time just to sit there and really talk to her about all the things, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's cool. You know, when you're sharing that, it makes me think that... Um, birth is such a it's such a powerful experience and it almost like puts you in a different state of consciousness in a way where like in a in a birth process yeah uh, there is there's almost like this ego dissolution that happens and defenses kind of have to be down the normal defenses that work for us in in ordinary life are not going to work in the labor and delivery room where it's like, okay, anything goes. I have no control over my body. I, have no, I don't have much control over anything right now. So, um, so the emotional openness kind of comes along with that state and, and, and it continues a little lingering into this postpartum, uh, into the, the postpartum aftermath. And, uh, yeah, and it's just, uh, it is, a, it is a process and it is a journey and it's kind of like, you know, you step into this doorway 
through this doorway into parenthood, it opens a whole different world and kind of start seeing things through through different eyes. And um, that carries a lot of emotional weight and resonance. Um, if somebody doesn't have deep, um, deep emotions or baby blues in the beginning, some people don't have it. Um, but it is more the norm than the exception. It is having it is more of the norm and the exception. Yeah, and I think the PSI yeah. tells you the the incidence is maybe around eighty percent. Eighty five percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I wonder okay. what do you can I ask? What do you tell your patients or your clients um, about BB blues and kind of how to cope with them or what to expect? Yeah, I just tell them to be on the lookout and that it's normal and to keep talking to their partners, keep communication open, be supportive, mm -hmm. re not get too anxious about the moodiness that usually it just goes away on its own mm -hmm. um, because you kind of get used to the new hormonal shift um, mm -hmm. and you may be developing a little bit of better sleep habits, you know? Yeah, <laughs> sleep is a big deal. It is a very big deal. Yeah. You know, you have like one night without much sleep, then, okay, the next morning you can kind of wing it and be okay. You have two nights like that, then you're a zombie. You have three nights like that, then, you know, all, all that's wrong. That's right. And I mean, they use sleep deprivation as a form of torture in the military. That's you know. right. And it induces psychosis after not, not sleeping for about 72 hours. You're pretty much guaranteed to, uh, you know, to enter into a psychotic state yeah yeah and i think that it's it's interesting because sometimes the anxiety and the hypervigilance that can manifest postpartum um the a lot of times the the mom is ch repeatedly checking the baby is the baby okay is the baby breathing is the baby okay is the baby breathing i've had moms say well the baby's awake i need to be awake or i need mm -hmm. to watch the baby at all times the baby needs to have eyes on it at all times Mm -hmm. And so they're thinking they're doing this great thing and they're just getting sleep deprived when they really don't, they have windows to sleep and they're not. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse because yeah. anxiety and lack of sleep is like a downward spiral. Totally, totally. And we know that one of this is one of the symptoms of postpartum anxiety is being unable to sleep while the baby is sleeping. Uh, I've, I've had moms who literally check up on the baby every five minutes during the night and set alarm every five minutes in case she falls asleep. So the alarm will wake her up every five minutes to check on the baby. Um, and, you know, and we have to acknowledge that this is coming from a very real fear. Uh, you know, it, it's it's easy to see this as, okay, it's an exaggerated fear response. However, we also have to honor that it is coming from a very real fear and the burden of this responsibility. I'm responsible for this baby. God forbid if something happens to this baby, I will be devastated. Uh, and, and this fear is really in the driver's seat. Uh, so we can have a lot of compassion for moms who operate from this scary kind of place um, and you know and I, I think this is where I think uh, all this information about SIDS actually doesn't do favors to postpartum moms because it just you know they'll hear about an incident of SIDS here and there 
like one ice one or two isolated incidents of SIDS. And it's so it does happen, but it's so rare. And the amount of moms that lose sleep over this fear of SIDS, uh, I this is just my opinion, but I think it just does uh, you know, a disproportionate amount of harm. Uh, way way more than if they just didn't worry so much about it. Oh, I totally agree on that. You know, yeah. And I've been working in this career for twenty years mm-hmm. and doing home birth and birth center. So I'm not quite as busy as like a hospital midwife. And I have never mm-hmm. had any of the babies I have worked with die from SIDS ever. You know, yeah. but the amount of mom who are worrying about them is incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just doesn't do anyone favors. No. So do you want to talk about some of the vulnerability factors and resiliency factors that are going to influence your perinatal mental health? Uh, yeah, sure. So so mental health symptoms, they don't happen in a vacuum. There's always reasons for them. It's not random. Why except one mom, you know, two moms can go through a birth experience and one can end up with postpartum let's say depression or anxiety, and one will not, not random. So some of the vulnerability factors are, uh, first of all, pre-existing history of mental health symptoms, somebody who already has, uh, is already struggling with depression or anxiety is going to be more likely that that's going to be either continue or exacerbate uh, in the postpartum time. It's not going to resolve was part of um, having a trauma a trauma history a childhood trauma history is another vulnerability factor any kind of unresolved or unfinished business it it shows up again it resurfaces postpartum kind of unconscious um, unconscious unresolved material can resurface postpartum and also get exacerbated eating symptoms um, having you know having a, a traumatic birth experience is another huge vulnerability factor and we know that trauma is in the eye of the beholder two people can have an emergency c-section and for one it can be experienced as non-traumatic non-traumatizing uh, and, and she can you know she'll be able to continue and go on symptom-free. And for another, it can be experienced as quite traumatizing and she might end up with some post-traumatic symptoms. And so what's what's the difference? Um, one of the main factors that determines if something is encoded uh, as a birth trauma or not is how much control does the woman feel in the in the experience and the birth experience. Uh, moms who feel like, you know, something is being like, they're not really involved. They're not listened to. Um, they're, they just feel like, you know, uh, just like, like an object, <laughs> they're like a body, yeah. but not, not a, not treated like a human being, uh, not, ex- not explain things. Uh, that's much more likely to be encoded later on as a birth trauma because there's really no control um uh, yeah and how i've heard with treated like human beings are they do better yeah how i've heard this explained is that yeah. if they are involved in the decision making yeah 
in their yeah. birth, um, mm -hmm. and they are treated kindly with respect. Yeah. But those are really important factors above all of the other details that happen in their birth. Are mm -hmm. they involved in those decisions and are they being treated with respect? And I mean, I've seen it even yeah. at home birth where there's a home birth, there's no medical complications. Mm -hmm. And I've had some clients say that they're traumatized, that they wanted more people in the room with them at more times. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then I've had other people say they were traumatized because they felt there were too many people in the room and they wish we would have given them more space, you know? Yeah. So that's just like the traumas in the eye of the beholder. It really, really is. Yeah. It, yeah, it really, really is. These are great examples. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And, you know, sometimes, especially in a hospital, like in a hospital setting, it's really sometimes time is of the essence and you know there's a lot of stuff that's involved and a lot happening at once and so uh you know when time is of the essence and a mom's or a baby's life is on the line then you know involving the mom in decision making and taking the time to explain things and slowing down there might just not be time for that so there usually is there usually is. Absolutely. There usually is. And if providers are Absolutely. out there listening to me, if it takes three minutes, that is three minutes well spent in the mm -hmm. life of this woman forever. She will remember those three minutes, whether they were taken or whether they were not. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that's really important for providers to hear. Mm -hmm. um, I also believe that it's important on the flip side for the, the patients, for the moms to hear that sometimes things might not be in their control in the, in the birth room and that it's okay. Um, it's not okay, but <laughs> they're, they're strong and you're strong and that you have coping skills that you can prepare ahead of time, irrespective of what other people do and irrespective of what else happens that's outside of your control. So I really want moms to have this empowering message. A lot of times, you know, moms do birth planning and a birth plan, and there's this expectation that, okay, my birth is going to go, you know, I'm going to have I'm going to have this kind of setup in the room. These are the people that I want. This is how much communication I want. You know, this is the priority of interventions that I want done. And more, many times, I mean, maybe you, you have more experience in the birth room than I do. Um, my understanding is that many times it, the expectations, uh, the reality does not match the expectations <laughs> and the birth plan is not, does not uh, get realized to the T and hand and preparing that okay we can have the birth plan it can give us this illusion of control um but this, we have to recognize it for what it is that it is an illusion for control and at yeah. the end of the day the only control that we have is just you know in, in our mind and what we tell ourselves how we cope with the situation uh, definitely so and i think that like moms to be empowered in that way the goal of making a birth plan is for the client, the family to get educated about all the different yes. things that are possible yeah. in birth. Because yeah. if we've made some ideas and thoughts ahead of time, it's going to be easier for us in the moment. So right. at my with my clients, I might have them do, let's do this nice home birth plan. 
which mm-hmm. is going to involve which pictures do you want and do you want to help catch the baby? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's make a plan for a hospital birth in case we have to transfer. And what are the mm-hmm. most important things there? Because you're not yeah. going to get it all. We're not at home anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. then say we have plan C where we have to go back for a C-section. What would be the most important things for you? And to really get them to realize that we can do our best. We can mm-hmm. do everything in our power and pregnancy to eat and exercise and be healthy. But birth is an unpredictable adventure. Yeah. We don't know the twist and the turns that it's going to take. You know, yeah, so your preparation and your planning is great. But yes, you you are not probably going to get every single thing on your birth plan. Yeah, and that's that's great to set that expectation. And I love that you do like plan A, plan B, and plan C section. Yeah. <laughs> this, it, it's great for people. I think that's the whole point of a birth plan is, okay, yes, you, you get educated. You can know about what different possibilities they, there are um, without getting too attached to any of the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I love what you're saying about a birth plan, including things that you really can control, like what you know, if you have candles in the room, that's a pretty easy thing to control. Uh, but, you know, but things like, I, I don't want to have a C-section, an emergency C-section. Well, you know, that's a total toss up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times this, you know, we're dealing with first time moms who've never been to labor. Mm-hmm. They don't know how they're going to cope with labor they don't know how they're going to feel in labor what labors this particular labor is going to feel to them how long is it going to be how many nights are they sleep deprived you know so it could be a very straightforward nice six-hour birth or it could be a long three-day birth you know so it's it's a lot a lot of possibilities yeah that's right yeah and they you know what and sometimes they also change can change their minds uh, in the moment, you know, the birth plan might say, I want an epidural. And in the moment, they might say, I don't want an epidural or vice versa. <laughs> Maybe they do want an epidural, whereas originally they didn't want one. So it, th- things can change also. And it, it's it's important to be open-minded and, and flexible when it comes to birth planning. Okay, so we talked about the risk of the traumatic birth could definitely impact their mental health. I've seen that sometimes um, people might have flashbacks um, to particular powerful moments in their birth, um, whether they were very forceful cervical or vaginal exams that they did not want or didn't consent to, or maybe they were saying stop and the provider did not. Sometimes they get flashbacks to that. Yeah. So I think that as providers and witnesses, whether you're a doula or midwife out there, um, talking to a client during those stressful moments, um, communicating to the provider, she's saying stop, you know, and providing care and love in those moments to to help that person um, process that a little bit better and you know, there's all sorts of things you can do after the trauma. I'm a big fan of EMDR. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely the the birth process can affect that perimental, perinatal mental health a lot. Yeah, for sure. And we do have a lot of really great trauma treatments, which can be accessed 
after the fact. But of course, prevention, you know, as they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of care. So taking those few minutes, which most of the time that is available to really just show care and respect and respect the client's boundaries, um, that can really a little bit can really go a long way. Yeah. So I know that um, we both took the PSI course and they recommend screening for mental perinatal mental health issues once every trimester. And mm-hmm. they also recommend screening again sometime between three and six weeks postpartum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's yep. very valuable information because not everybody will come out and look like they're depressed or anxious. Um, but a lot of times we'll be a little bit more honest on the paper and that you'll, you'll find some cases that would have slipped by. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that, you know, doing the screenings and the EPDS, uh, the the Edinburgh is a really great tool to, for providers to use. It really doesn't, doesn't take much time and it really can be surprising what you see on there. Um, in, in the program that I worked for, we had patients fill out the EPDS every, um, had them fill it out on a regular basis. Every week we had to do it. And many times, you know, we think, okay, uh, she's looking like she's doing better, but you know, but then on the EPDS, it would say like, oh, uh, you know, she's really, (laughs) really high score, like all the reason, um, you know, and uh, anxiety through the roof and really, you know, more than what meets the eye. And the flip, the flip side of it is that sometimes people also under report and will put down, you know, little to no symptoms when it's pretty clear from, it's pretty clear from their presentation that they're really, really struggling. So mom is having a hard time you know, uh, organizing if she's tearful, if the moods are up, really up and down, if her the way that she's talking reflects a lot of guilt and self-shaming and fears. Mm-hmm. We know that, okay, if she's not sleeping, uh, we know that, okay, there's definitely concerns here. So if a mom like that has a really low EPDS, something is not matching up here. And this is where the, the screenings are wonderful. But they also need to be taken in context with, um, with talking and to the to the client and having that self report and also observe, observing, um, and also sometimes if it's acceptable, also getting information collateral information from their family or their support system. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And there are some people who just don't want it to be on paper. <laughs> They're yeah. afraid of anything on paper. I usually tell my clients, don't don't put your name on it. This is just for yeah. us to see a number. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, you know, taking that class, you know, made me realize that different groups have different scores on EPDS. Like men are depressed at a lower score because a lot of men don't want to admit that they're depressed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, in certain yeah, cultural groups or whatever, they may just say, well, life is tough and <laughs> and not really recognize it as depression, you know, so. Yeah. yeah, and also some of the items on there, they're kind of vague, they're vague enough that they're really open to interpretation. So, uh, you know, so some one person can 
answer, one person can interpret it as, uh, you know, yes, this is affecting me almost every single day. Um, I'm, you know, having a hard time finding joy almost every day, right? Mm -hmm. But for somebody else, it could be a different interpretation and they might be like, no, this is not a problem for me at all. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the intrusive thoughts. I I know you brought that up earlier and I think those are alarming for a lot of people um, that if not have them. And what I see sometimes are just people thinking about all the different ways their baby could come to harm, you know, and uh, it's thoughts they don't have any control of. They obviously don't want to harm their baby, but they're just coming in. Like, what if the baby fell down these stairs, you know? Mm-hmm. What if I yeah. dropped the baby right now and the baby died or different things? So you can, can you talk a little bit about those intrusive thoughts? Yeah, of course. So a, a lot of moms have intrusive thoughts. Um, and the intrusive thoughts, you know, they're, I think they need to just be normalized. Um, they're coming from a very normal place of, of fear and concern. So most moms will have, if they're not lying, will have at least one intrusive thought at some point. I have yet to meet a mom who has had zero intrusive thoughts postpartum. Um, so I just really want to normalize it. And I think the thing that's really, uh, the, the thing that's really distressing is um, the relationship to these intrusive thoughts. What story are you telling yourself about the intrusive thoughts? A lot of times what happens is the mom will have an intrusive thought like, oh, what if I, you know, what if I drop the baby down the stairs and then they fly out the window? Uh, and then it, and then following that thought is, why am I thinking this? I must be, something must be really wrong with my brain that I'm even having these thoughts. What's wrong with me? I must be a bad mom. Um, I must have a messed up brain. And then like this whole spiral starts. So the problem is really not the thought in and of itself. A thought is just a thought. You are not your thoughts. (laughs) Your thoughts just come into your mind sometimes. Um, the problem is really the relationship and the story, the narrative around the thought. Um, so the more that the more that these intrusive thoughts can be normalized, and the more that moms can, you know, can just not get too attached to these thoughts. Okay, so I'm having this thought about the baby falling down the stairs. Okay, cool. It's just a thought. Let's move on. Um, the more that moms can do that. Uh, the less the intrusive thoughts are going to have a grasp over them. We see different variations of intrusive thoughts as well. So, you know, having an intrusive thought here or there might not be such a big deal. But um, I've worked with some moms who literally this is like taking up most of their mental real estate um, all day, thinking about all these catastrophes that can happen with the baby. And it's and the intrusive thoughts sometimes can be strong. Sometimes they can be quite, um, you know, quite like uh, have a firm grasp. They can be really hard to move past. It can really like, you know, just be kind of glued, binded to the brain. So in those situations where, you know, the coping skills, the cognitive coping skills might not be working, um, you know, we can start with we can start with um, 
you know, trying to examine and change the relationship with the intrusive thoughts and kind of, you know, try to understand them a little bit better and not, um, not be too attached to them. Um, you know, maybe even have some humor about them. Um, but if they're really bothering a person, if they're really happening so much and they're so strong throughout the day, all day, and it's interfering with her functioning, it's interfering with, you know, how she's taking care of the baby, she's overly cautious, she's anxious, she's, you know, walking on pins and needles all day, you know, then, uh, you know, then we might want to look at other interventions like uh, pharmacological interventions, which may help with just priming the brain to be more receptive to the coping skills. Um, but in and of themselves, intrusive thoughts, yes, they, they you know, sound pretty scary, but they're really monsters with no teeth. And I often tell moms that, um, I often tell moms that the thing that would be, if she's, if she's, if she sees her intrusive thought, as something that is, you know, I, I don't like this intrusive thought. I don't really want it to be there. Um, if she has insight into it, I'm terrified of harming my baby, so I'm going to be extra protective. I'm terrified of my baby uh, being in a catastrophe, so I will be protective. And and these, I'm not okay with having these thoughts. Um, that's actually that's actually a good thing. That shows some level of insight. If a mom actually believes the intrusive thoughts, like let's say a mom, um, you know, let's say a mom, you know, has a thought about harming the baby, um, know, harming the baby in the river or something. Uh, if she has this thought and it's like, actually, I think it might be a good idea to act on it. You know, then we're looking at, then we're looking at postpartum psychosis and we have to take it very, very seriously. And, you know, and that's, that's already a, a really scary thing. But if a mom is like, I'm having this thought, but in reality, I would never follow through on these thoughts. Um, then that shows a level of insight, which is actually very healthy. So those are the moms that I'm not so concerned about. Yeah, the ones who are showing distress about the yeah. intrusive thoughts. Yeah, yeah it's a sign of And health. I'm glad you brought up the topic of medications. Um, I work in the natural birth world. Um, mm -hmm. So many people are anti-medication of any type. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that is my big population. <laughs> and so many times I I am brought cases where it has gotten really, really bad. Mm -hmm. And when I prescribe a medication, I usually do like a month or two of medication and then I have them come back. And it is miraculous that these medications can work so well for so many people. Um, I loved PSI's pharmacology course, and they really break down the safety of, um, you know, SSRIs and antidepressants, some anti-anxiety meds during pregnancy, during lactation. Um, it made me feel so much more confident in my prescribing. I think that, you know, there's different levels of depression. Um, and so the proper use of these medications when it's getting really bad I wish that, you know, people didn't have quite a big as fear of them as they did. 
you know, because I think they are useful tools in our toolbox. And when people are getting really, you know, down the rabbit hole, it, it makes a wonderful difference in, in enabling you to enjoy your postpartum and your baby where before it's been a really big fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious since I'm not a prescriber, but I'm curious for you, like from a prescriber's perspective, what are some of the biggest uh, barriers that you encounter when people are, you know, not on board with taking medication? Yeah, so one of the biggest barriers I would say is that a lot of people do not want to prescribe to pregnant people. So like uh, primary care doctors, doctors in the urgent care, the ER, some of them will just like, well, you're pregnant, I'm not touching you. So I I run this company called Midwife Rx, and one of our goals is to help pregnant and lactating people uh, with mental health meds. Um, and sometimes they've struggled for a long time finding someone. So that's the first issue is actually finding someone who will prescribe to a pregnant person. Yeah. Um, and then I think just a little bit of stigma or some misbelief that it's going to be addictive or it's going to ruin their brain or that people are going to judge them about it. You know, I'm not one of those people that take medications, you know, mm-hmm. and medications are tools. Medications are due to science and they are tools and they can be overused and they can be underused, you know. Yeah. And there's a time and a place for, for medications. And um, so, yeah, I like herbal remedies as well. I know a bunch of those. Um, Mm -hmm. They do not have as dramatic of a positive effect (laughs) as uh, pharmaceuticals do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious, can I ask, how do you help your patients make that decision where you know, like if somebody is not sure if they need medication or not, um, mm-hmm. how do you help them make that decision? Because a lot of times, you know, moms, moms can, you know, the therapy can work without medications. You know, they can coast along on coping skills. I think at our PSI training, one of the um, one of the things that I really starkly remember when we were talking about medications is they said. A mom who is having a lot of symptoms has two choices. She can either scale up a vertical wall every day trying to use coping skills, or she can take medications and just walk, you know, start walking on a on a less steeper slope, start walking on flatter ground and have an yeah. easier time. So I'm curious, how do you how do you determine like at what point somebody who's unsure? Uh, really needs it or maybe they don't really need it and they can use other things yeah so I think with the EPDS they're scoring and with Uh the GAD if we're at the severe level we need some medication you know moderate level medication will probably be helpful but it's not essential and then moderately severe you're getting into that gray water where you probably should be but the key is I can't make anybody take medication. Right. <laughs> I have seen some cases where the mom's like, no, I don't want to take this medication. I see how much they're suffering, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they grin and bear it and get through it and hate their three months that they're dealing with this and hate their life and hate their kids and hate their baby. Right. Like just 
it's tough. Um, yeah. Or maybe they a month goes by and they realize I am ready to try what Angie suggested, you know, and they mm-hmm. come back. Things got worse even, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's always, I truly believe in client, you know, decision making. So I'm not yeah. forcing anybody, but it's always yeah. their decision. And I try to really think about what are their symptoms that are the most uh, distressing to them. For a lot of people, it's the sleep. And I know mm-hmm. that if we can get sleep corrected, a lot of those other things are going to slowly get better too. Yes. So I might come up with, I think you should be on these two medications. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh no, not two. And <laughs> so then if they're only going to do one, I try to pick the one that's going to be most helpful, you know, and it's not like they're going to need to be on these for forever. Most people would say six months or a year, yeah. you know, but okay. it's an individualized process, you know? Yeah. 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 It really is. And medication, part of medications is such a loaded topic. Uh, you know, so much also depends on uh, the mom's relationship to the medication and, you know, how how on board she is with it how optimistic she is about it. I really believe, you know, I really strongly believe in the power of the placebo effect as well. It's um, placebo effect, it's a, it's a real thing. And, you know, and a lot of times with the moms that I've worked, the ones that are taking medications and say, like, I'm on board with this medication, I really believe that this is going to help me, they start seeing effects very, they start seeing effects pretty quickly. And sometimes they start seeing effects like on an SSRI so quickly that it's even before <laughs> the medication, you know, uh, fully kicks in. Um, and, you know, and I've also seen the, the flip side where, uh, you know, they try different medications and, it, you know, and there's not, and they're just not responding so well to any of them and, uh, you know, and have doubts. I really don't want to be taking this medication, but I'm only taking it because, you know, because I want to please the doctor or I'm only taking it because I feel like I have no choice, but I really don't want to be on it. So for those situations, just from, you know, from what I've, from what I've witnessed, the medications tend to generally work less well uh, because there's some kind of like unconscious barrier that almost like blocks them from uh, being working as optimally as they can. Um, and and I love also what you're saying, Angie, about that these medications are not meant to be a life sentence. They're just meant to be a tool used to you know, get through some difficult times um, and make a postpartum experience more more enjoyable and more pleasant. Um, this is one of the misconceptions is that well, if I start taking medications, how am I going to get off of them? Is it going to be a life sentence? Am I always going to need them? And hopefully the answer is hopefully not. Um, yeah. But, you know, I we think- know that medications, they, they work best when they're not in isolation. I look at medications as like, okay, you put oil on a pan, but you know, but then you could add some like ingredients and then things can really start cooking. Um, but if you just have ingredients with no oil, you need to be stirring all the time to, you know, to like not burn whatever you're making. Um, 
Yeah. Only and oil I, and no ingredients, then you'll just have something really, some really crispy oil. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. how um, PSI says that the medication puts the fire out in the brain yeah. and that therapy helps rebuild the house and rewire the house. And uh, talk therapy is important. Behavioral therapy is important. A lot of people have trauma from earlier on in life that may they may have never talked to anybody about and it's just been their festering mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. now that we've had this big life change and we've become mothers we realize wow look at all those horrible things you know my mother did to me or mm -hmm. whatever like those things start coming up and so we have to deal with those and if somebody doesn't want to talk to the, about them, then we need to do EMDR where we're at least processing them in the body, you know, or some kind of craniomagnetic healing. There needs to be something done, definitely along with medication. And unfortunately, there's just such stigma about a lot of mental health things that a lot of people don't want to do anything. They're just, they, they realize they're not doing great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right. But they don't want to try it. Some people are like, they don't want to try anything, you know, and those it's very yeah. frustrating to me when I know that there are some really great tools that can help them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and this is why it's great that you're doing this podcast and you're putting the information out there that, yes, you, you know, you are, you are struggling and suffering postpartum. But there are tools, there are methods that can help you. Life can get easier. It does not have to be this hard all the time. So resources are definitely available, you know, should you choose to pursue them. Yes. So why don't you talk about the postpartum uh, plan that you would recommend for someone that, you know, wants to make sure their mental health is taken care of postpartum? What, what kind of postpartum plan would you do? For postpartum plan. Uh, yeah, I love making postpartum plans. And I actually do this with all of my, um, all of my pregnant clients is making a postpartum plan that will equip them with kind of a, a roadmap of what to expect and, and what to do so that they're not, you know, staying up in the middle of the night, um, you know, three weeks after the baby exhausted and, you know, and, and thinking like, oh my God, I have no idea who to call. I don't know what to do right now. So um, the postpartum plan is really client-centered and it's really centered on, first of all, the education component, understanding what to expect, baby blues, what symptoms can show up, what can be some of the difficulties. It kind of gets, gets people thinking. Um, the second part of it is coping skills. What are the coping skills that can help you to manage postpartum that, you know, they are accessible to you and that you can, you know, you can realistically implement on a regular basis so that you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to be in the moment and, and not knowing what to do. Um, another part of it is sleep stabilization. This is one of the really central baseline foundational things that is accentuated in the postpartum plan. Like how do we 
um, how do we structure your sleep so that you have enough protected sleep? Um, sleep preservation is really, really, I mean, it, it's, it's just crucial to the mental health. And, you know, as they say that the difference between um, the difference between hope and despair is a good night of sleep. So, <laughs> so that's accentuated. A lot of times parents think that, well, once the baby arrives, I can say goodbye to sleeping. And, you know, that certainly doesn't have to be the case. I also see a lot of times moms who say, well, I need to be all night up all night with the baby because um, my partner has to go to work early in the morning and they need their brain to be working. And I'm just like, well, what about you? If you're taking care of a baby, like you have a job, your brain also needs to be working. So, and you're also recovering physically postpartum and hormonally. So yes, your sleep is more important. Um, so that's, that's very much accentuated in the postpartum plan. There are ways to structure sleep, to optimize sleep for everybody in the family, not just everybody except for mom. Um, and then the and then the other piece of it is is support system. So tapping into um, your support system, if your support system is you know small or less than optimal, then building up your support system and either reaching out and um, and finding resources or accepting help from resources that are already available to you. A lot of moms they find. Um, have some guilt and shame about either asking for help or accepting help. But those things are also skills. Accepting help when it's offered is a skill. And so the postpartum plan really hones in on like who are your supports? Um, who are your practical supports? Who are your emotional supports? Who are your professional supports? Um, and, you know, in dividing up your support system in the categories so that you know like who and when uh, you can ask or be receptive to help from uh, that can also really help people have conversations uh, with their support system about postpartum planning I encourage moms to share the postpartum plan and even complete it with their partners and with other significant um, people in their support system because it really does take a village so Amen um, to that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit on the postpartum plan. Yeah. And I think it's good what you've said. And some of those support people, like people that you can ask for help when you've had a really bad night, I say put them on a list, put their phone numbers there and put it on your fridge mm -hmm. so that when your brain is sleep deprived and you can't think and you realize you've had a horrible night and you need help, okay, I can go down my list. One, two, and three. Can you come over and pace the floor with this baby so I can go take a nap for two hours? You know, is to have have those people around you. I think obviously here in America, we, we do not do good a great job of supporting mothers and fathers. We do not have mandatory leave time for parents. So it's beautiful when we can have two parents that are able to stay home for a while with the baby. Yeah. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes a, a dad might just get two weeks or something. Um, but then spacing out the help. You know, the grandparents want to come visit. Well, why don't you plan that for when dad goes back to work? You know, and then plan your sister coming for two weeks after that so that you have that help and spacing that out. Um, you know, and that I tell people, and back in the day we used to, 
live in villages with tons of family all around. And mm-hmm. people would be bringing you soup all day and they'd be taking yeah. your kids to play with them and you'd have support without asking for it. And nowadays we live these individualized, private little lives and we're exactly. lacking that village and women and men are suffering, you know, with, yeah. the, new, with the new baby. Yeah, absolutely. And and I really think that that's, um, it's a huge problem, especially in America. Um, I know that here, this is a, a cultural difference. Um, just the amount of support that moms get here is so different than in America. Here, uh, when uh, when a family has a new baby, there will be a meal train for them. And, you know, and neighbors and, and friends and community, they will be, um, they're just there. And, you know, the, they're just they're just there and just knowing that even if they're not doing anything that's special, just knowing that okay, I have neighbors that I can't knock on their door if I need something. Uh, these little things they add up and they make a big difference. So um, mm-hmm. it it is a it is a uniquely maybe in other countries too, but um, having you know having been based in America for a very long time. It really is, uh, I do see it as a unique American problem. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that sometimes I'll get for families is a little sheet of paper that we can hang on their front door. And ideally with these meal trains, people are dropping off meals on a front porch in the cooler and mom and dad don't have to entertain anybody. And someone is just Mm -hmm. gifting some food with no expectations. That's ideal. Um, Otherwise, there's a sheet on this door that some some families put up um, and is saying, yes, we have a new baby. Thank you for your love and attention. If we've invited you over, please stay for under 10 minutes or less. And mm-hmm. if we invite you to stay longer, here are five chores that we need doing. Taking out the <laughs> trash, putting a load of laundry in, go cleaning a toilet, yeah. taking my older kid to the park for two hours, you know, so like very mm-hmm. practical help. Lots of people say they want to help but they don't know Mm -hmm. what to do. And everyone loves the new baby and loves to hold the new baby. But really what that family needs is practical support so that the mother can can hold that baby, can nurse that baby, can rest. And we need that that cultural shift that recognizes it's not about the baby right now. It's also about this mother and this family that's, you know, trying to survive in this new world of theirs. Yeah, absolutely. They need the laundry done. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, you know, it, I I love what you're saying about focusing on the mother and um moms need self-care just because there's a baby in the picture doesn't mean that self-care has to go out the window. In fact, self-care is even more important. Um doesn't have to take, you know, tons of time, but even implementing like little micro self-care into the day and having some protected time just for you to recharge the batteries uh, can be a real game changer. Oh, yeah. Whenever I first notice someone going through some mood changes, I talk to them about what they're doing to restore their soul weekly. You know, I know that they're taking care of their family. They're taking care of their kids. They're doing all these things. But what are they doing for themselves? For some people, that may be a little walk on the beach. For other people, it's a walk around their neighborhood. For some people, it's sitting in a coffee shop having a coffee with some friends. You know, but figuring out that thing that restores your soul, like you said, it resets your batteries. Like, 
oh, I had this 30 minutes and now I feel like myself again, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times people think that, and, you know, speaking of restoring the soul, a lot of times, um, you know, people think that, okay, I'm just going to, when I want to relax and rest, I'm just going to like scroll on the phone or, you know, (laughs) or binge on Netflix. Uh, But, but the reality is that those things are actually that they're distraction that just keeps draining the battery so when we're talking about, I want to clarify, like when we're talking about self-care, we're talking about truly like soul restorative things, uh, you know, preferably with an internal focus um, where you can give your body a chance to truly, uh, truly relax and truly repair uh, and truly repair from all of the, the stress and the health. Uh, tension from the day yes and I think probably the last thing we should talk about is the yoga nidra um Mm -hmm. I went to a yoga retreat uh up north of Gainesville in Florida and I was meeting a friend there I was there a little bit earlier so I'm like oh I'm gonna go to a yoga class what's the next one on the schedule to yoga nidra I never heard of that but okay I'm willing to try so I go to this class and there's, I don't know, 10 people there and I'm looking around to see what kind of blocks or bolsters, you know, all the different accoutrement that yoga classes have and everyone's getting really cozy <laughs> yeah. and they're getting blankets and they're looking like they're, it's nap time. I'm like, well, this is different, but okay. And that was my introduction to yoga nidra. Um so why don't you explain it from your perspective and now how that can help postpartum? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, that's, I, I love that introduction. It's a perfect segue. And um, yoga nidra is, yoga nidra is a total game changer. Um, for me, I learned about yoga nidra during my yoga t- teacher training. And before that, I've seen like, I've seen like, advertisements and videos for yoga nidra where they just show a person laying down in a shavasana and I I just I don't know it just never really struck a chord with me I was like okay they're just rest they're just laying down doing nothing Uh, I want to work out so um, during my yoga teacher training I really changed my perspective and um, I was introduced to the practice of yoga nidra where your body is sleeping while your mind remains awake, essentially. And it really is the practice of just being there, laying down, you're doing nothing, you're just being. However, while you're being, a lot is actually happening on the inside. So you're laying down very still um, and you, you you have the, you're practicing what's called pratihara, removal of the senses so your eyes are um, most likely closed if that feels comfortable to you you're laying on your back you're not moving Um, you've blocked out the entire visual world the entire world of, of movement and you're and you can turn the senses inward. The only thing that's keeping you anchored is the facilitator's voice so the facilitator is guiding you through this this very structured, sequenced kind of journey. And 
the journey goes through the layers of consciousness and it goes from the physical from the external environment to the physical body to the breath to the uh to the mind the emotions the the deeper wisdom of the soul so it really goes uh very deeply inward and during this process the body um can has the chance to get into alpha and theta brainwave states um and during the last part of yoga nidra can also get into the delta brainwave state where that is the deep that is the deep sleep brainwave state so a lot of times people yoga nidra you're kind of on this bridge between sleep and wakefulness kind of drifting in and out of sleep um so you're 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 like semi-awake uh you you know what's going on but but, but you're not really but you're not really consciously awake you're on that bridge and in that space between sleep and wakefulness is a space where you can really kind of hover in your awareness and and it access your true self a lot of good things can happen from that state from that state the body can truly let go and relax um, cells and fibers get repaired and can get repaired um, you know creativity gets unlocked in the theta brainwave state so um, you know helps to regulate metabolism and hormones and pretty much has positive effects on every system in your body and the, the cool thing is for um, for postpartum moms, yoga nidra can be such a game changer because half an hour of yoga nidra is the equivalent of restoration to two hours of regular sleep. And yeah. so, you know, I don't think yoga nidra should be like a replacement for sleep. However, it's a really great adjunctive practice to optimize the sleep that you're getting um, to get more restoration from the sleep that you're getting. And if you do happen to be sleep deprived, then doing yoga nidra can help offset some of the detriments from the sleep deprivation. So um, I, so I've been practicing ever, ever since I learned about yoga nidra in my um, teacher training, it really, uh, I've been practicing it almost every day. And the practice is really just, it, it just, uh, it's just one of these things where like, you just go with it. And it kind of became part of my life purpose to uh, share this practice with more people. Um, I started doing yoga nidras with, um, with clients occasionally. And, you know, I started practicing it with uh, some of my yoga students and, um, and then I started recording it on onto a podcast. I felt like, okay, um, I I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't want to keep sending uh, MP3s over email to people, to separate people. <laughs> so I put it on a podcast and I've just been continuing with that. My podcast is called Nale Yoga, um, Yoga Nidra Journeys for Deep Rest Plus. And it has, and it has a, and it has a number of um, these yoga nidra practices, which you can just listen to. Um, the cool thing about it is that 
it's you know it's it's very accessible it's one click away it doesn't cost anything and it doesn't take a great deal of time you don't have to travel anywhere for this so it's just a very accessible practice for almost anybody in the world who has access to the internet um and it can be really transformational for the mind and body especially for sleep deprived parents yes Yes. Well, I'm excited that you're doing that. I think that everyone could use that. Um, I read a research study. Um, it was in the in a journal for midwives, and it was talking about when you're doing a late night shift and you're getting tired, just doing like 20 minutes of yoga nidra, like you said, is like having a couple hour nap. But you're not allowed to sleep on the job, you know. <laughs> So you're just meditating in your back room doing the yoga nidra and you come out and it's amazing. And I, I've decided to try that whenever I'm really tired, I've had a long birth and it is quite remarkable how well you feel at the end of yoga nidra. Yeah. Yeah. So do, yeah. So do you do yoga nidra when you're um, like on a regular basis? I would say, yeah, I do it a couple times a week. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm usually going off of an app uh, like Insight Timer that's free, you know, but they yeah. have a lot of different yoga nidra options. And yeah, mm -hmm. I've done it. I've done it at my house. I've done it at the office. I've done it at a long birth. Yeah, exactly. You could really do anywhere. Um, you just just need a quiet place and that's it. And uh, it, it's such an easy, accessible practice. And I actually recommend it to people over meditation because with meditation, uh, it does require some content. It requires more concentration and alertness. Uh, when somebody, I mean, yoga nidra does fall under that, you know, larger umbrella. But when we're talking about like sitting down meditation and concentrating on, you know, on, on your breathing or, concentrating on you know counting or whatever whatever you're meditating on um a lot of times people will have a really hard time staying still they'll have a hard time focusing and their minds is just gonna go all over the place and then they'll you know start judging themselves and be like what's wrong with me why can't I just concentrate <laughs> you know what's wrong with me already? my mind is everywhere I'm not good at meditating and it'll cause a lot of people to, to give up. But with yoga nidra, because you're, you don't actually need to concentrate, you only just need to try to listen to the voice and stay awake. So if your mind goes all over the place, that's totally fine. Um, because you're in that alpha brainwave state, it, it it's your mind will be your mind will be, you know, semi you know, wandering in places that are important to you. So uh, in that way, yoga nidra is easier than meditation that does require concentrate, more concentrate, concerted concentration. Yeah. Well, if people are trying to find you or re reach out to you, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, so they can find me on my website, www that mentalfitnesstherapy.org. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find my page on Facebook, which I created only recently, so it doesn't have much on it right now. Um, they can find me. They can find the podcast um, 
on it's www.naleyoga and a a l e h yoga dot podbean dot com and um you know and and if these links are posted in the show notes you can just click on the links yeah yeah we'll put these in the show notes and I want to thank you so much for coming on here today and thank you for all the work that you're doing um for the families that you encounter. I think that this um, topic of conversation deserves just as much priority and importance that our physical health does. You know, if our mental health is not well, then it doesn't matter how great our body is. You know, we need both. Yeah, Yeah, they work together. (laughs) They work together. So if anyone wants to find me, I am um, at Midwife Love. Uh, dot com or midwiferx.com um, if you're in need of some medications and no one's wanting to touch you because you're pregnant I'm here for you I can assess you and do the quizzes as well so and it's been really great talking to you Ruthie um, for the backstory Ruthie and I've had to reschedule this I'm not sure how many times but it seems like at least four I think this is our fourth time our fourth attempt <laughs> Life of a midwife, yes. So uh, we've just had births on every day that we've been doing them. And one time my internet went out. But um, I'm really happy we got to meet today. And maybe one day we'll see each other in person at a conference or something. But I want to give blessings to you and and thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Angie. And thank you so much for all the wonderful work that you're doing and, you know, your bravery in being a prescriber for pregnant women. (laughs) You're doing just this, such a huge service and all the, you know, all the, the, the midwifery that you're doing. It's, it's really um, amazing, you know, coming uh, and helping women, new moms from this uh, holistic kind of perspective. So I just, uh, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing. Um, I love that you're doing this podcast and just, uh, yeah, so great to, to be on here and have this conversation with you and, um, and I, you know, definitely hope that we can um, run into each other somewhere in the future, maybe at PSI conference or something. And uh, if you're ever, you know, if you're ever on this side of the world, you can, um, you know, where to find me. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you all, beloved community. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you.